Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Okay, I, I think it's clear that if you're an actor, a comic actor, the director that you want to work with is Harold Ramis. So when you get the call um, to be in a Harold Ramis movie, if you're a comedian, it must be uh, quite a thrill to work with the person who directed Belushi and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and so many great movies. Um, year One, which is coming out uh, next next week is an ensemble comedy and we're really thrilled that one of the stars of the movie um, who plays Kane um, is with us tonight to um, say a few words about working with Harold Ramis. So please welcome David Cross. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, thank you very much. First, uh, some folks we need to thank. I want to thank uh, Deborah Fowler at Connecticut Muffins for the uh, basket in the back. Um, and uh, Stephen Genie at uh, WAZY, uh, crazy morning team over there, uh, who got us in touch with Deborah over at Connecticut Muffins. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the American Heritage Dictionary defines Harold Ramis as a <laughs> opaque, filmy gauze. <laughs> this, uh, this might be better. Uh, get this right here. Uh, good evening. I'm very pleased to be here tonight to see Harold Ramis recognized uh, by the Museum of the Moving Image. Um, is, it, is museum proper? Is it proper to call it a museum? It's, it's like a, is it really? It seems like a kind of like a video outlet kind of. I mean, all right. Um, I'm sure that when Harold was working on, uh, oh, your meatballs, your stripes, your caddyshack, and animal house, that he knew in the back of his mind that he, even though his artistic sensibility might be too refined for the general public, <laughs> that museum recognition would surely come. <laughs> and unless they're going to show. Groundhog's Day at the uh, Groundhog Day at the uh, Met. This is as close to a museum <laughs> as it's going to get. Um, I uh, let's all right, forget all this. We don't need this. We we know. Oh well, he did Ghostbusters, Laughs, Blockbuster. Uh, he discovered a young talent named uh, Robbie De Niro. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let me just tell you. Um, uh, it was a, and I and I, I'm not a big uh, kiss ass. I'm very self conscious about that or coming off like that. Uh, but I, uh, and I told Harold um, before I got the part. Up until I got the part, then it was like, yeah, whatever. But uh, uh, how much he meant to me and uh, and my peers. 
um, and how I, I honestly was surprised and dismayed that he isn't mentioned in the same breath as, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about, uh, you know, Woody Allen or, uh, you know, uh, various comic uh, writer, director, producers, actors, and uh, it, it's, it should be common knowledge. It should be, I mean, literally top tier, top five. Um, and hopefully this will, you know, uh, start that recognition so that when people are teaching um, comedy classes, it, uh, whether it's at uh, Harvard University, <laughs> anybody? Or, um, or the learning annex, you know, <laughs> that he, he, by every right, should be recognized in that top tier. Um, and uh, I don't want to hear Judd Apatow's name anymore unless Harold Ramis is attached to it. Um, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, <laughs> this is... Uh, not to date you too much, uh, I'm, I, I'm 45 up in the top here, uh, but I, my mom had to uh, go with me to see Animal House because uh, I couldn't get in because it was an R-rated movie. My, mom, my mommy took me. <laughs> and uh, Anyway, it was an absolute thrill and pleasure to work with you and, uh, and your Buddhist-like Zen sensibility, which uh, created a really great atmosphere and wonderful set, and uh, the leeway you gave us all to uh, work within. And uh, I do think you are a comic genius, and uh, that word should really only a handful of people should deserve to get that. And one of them is Mark Twain. <laughs> so I'm very honored to be a part of this honor, and Harold from one. Comic genius to another. Thank you so much. Harold Ramis. So, it's been a great sleepover, and uh, thank you for the gruel and the garb. Hey, where's everybody going? To look for thy brother, Abel. Good luck. <laughs> what? I said, uh, good luck, Father. I'm really worried about him. You're not coming? Oh, I'm just gonna stay here and finish toiling, and uh, then we'll be right behind you. Good. Hey, I'm heading to the coast. You guys should come with me, all right? I got a feeling they're going to try to blame this whole Abel killing business on you. Why would they blame it on us? Because when they find him and they see his head's all bashed in, they're going to start pointing fingers. You two are drifters. They're going to put two and two together. Now stop asking so many questions and let's go. Go, 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 go. Kane. After him! The gate on us! Yeah! Getting away! Eat my dust, father! This is really too fast! Hold tight! Hold tight! My justice will be swift! Yeah! No! No! 
odds of that? Hey, am I lucky or what? Your head's smoking. <laughs> hey, it didn't, uh, didn't leave a mark, did it? Uh, just a pink, red hole. I mean, your bangs are gonna cover it. Okay. Okay, well, now here he is. Please welcome Harold Ramis. One person stood up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but you're our first guest to have theme music. Yeah, that's theme. true. Yeah, that, that follows me everywhere. <laughs> so seeing, I haven't seen year one yet, but, but I've seen uh, th- these clips. And something about that clip, the sort of idea of bringing this modern sensibility back to the, yeah, you know, Bible days, uh, mm-hmm. reminded me a bit of a sketch you did um, at SCTV, the Ben-Hur oh. takeoff. With, <laughs> yeah. um, the I actually thought about that when we were uh, <laughs> developing the film. We, we, did, uh, we wanted to do, we, we did the lowest budget television show ever. We did it out of Toronto. We had about $10,000 per show, which meant uh, we could do very little. So we wrote a Ben-Hur parody for a low budget TV show that was way too ambitious. And once they built the sets and bought the costumes, they said, that's the only piece you can do in the whole show. <laughs> so we had to stretch. We did a 22-minute Ben-Hur parody. Uh, and, and it didn't work. We rehearsed it, and it did not work. Uh, John Candy was playing Ben-Hur. <clears throat> and uh, I was playing the Stephen Boyd role. And, uh, and finally, out of total desperation, I said to John Candy, why don't you play it like Curly and the Three Stooges? <laughs> it's like, it, it when all else fails, just do Curly. <laughs> so, and he did, and it was a very funny piece. But it, it's, it sort of was the first chance I got to actually put something in front of a camera where we got to screw around with the ancient world. That was an amazing show. That yeah. series must have been very influential to, your, to the way you worked, the way you thought about comedy. It had an incredible... Um, cast with Gene Levy and Rick Moranis. Uh, could you talk about sort of what you learned with that experience of doing SCTV? That? Well, that was an extension of the Second City, which was, uh, as you, I'm sure you know, is an improvisational theater, soon to celebrate its 50th anniversary in Chicago. There will be a huge reunion in December. Uh, going back to the days of Alan Arkin and uh, Elaine May and Mike Nichols and those kind of people, um, and it's, it was the first place to actually teach an improvisational technique, which had been uh, codified by uh, a theater teacher named Viola Spolin. And Viola, uh, I think she had like a, a government grant, and she wrote theater games for children. And uh, her son, Paul Sills, uh, became a director, and he was at University of Chicago, and realized these games could be played by adults, that they, it was actually a good way to teach uh, stagecraft and teach improvisation. So that became a working method, and it, it was taught to generations of people, and half the people you see in working in professional comedy today have been trained either at Second City or some offshoot of Second City, whether it's the Upright Citizens Brigade or the uh, Improv Olympic, Groundlings, uh, the old proposition in Boston. Everyone's had some kind of improv training, and it all stems back to Second City. We just took that to our working style to television. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the key, like, sort of key... Concepts behind or, or ideas, some of the things you kept in mind to sort of let you improvise freely, you know, in, in, during live performance. Well, uh, so, so things I took seriously. Um, B- Bernie Solins, who was the first uh, commercial producer of the Second City, 
uh, had a, a, a dictum that uh, he was always telling the casts, uh, which is always work from the top of your intelligence, uh, which I thought was really valuable. And uh, it, it was... Um, it set a standard, and it, it, it challenged us to even if we were even if you were playing an idiot, there are things an idiot can know. You know, there 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 are smart ways to do things, and there are dumb ways to do things. And I also learned that um, uh, that broad comedy is not necessarily dumb comedy, which is very important if you're going to do if you want to be popular, you have to do broad comedy. It's uh, if you want to reach a lot of people. Uh, and it's not the, obviously not the only kind of comedy. I, I am a big fan of Woody Allen and would not mention my own name in the same breath. Uh, thanks, <laughs> even no matter what David says. But, uh, um, so th- that was another one. Um, Doug Kenny, who uh, we wrote uh, Animal House together and Caddyshack, said another thing that always stuck with me. He said, uh, middle class values are not necessarily second class values. Mm. Which mm. I thought, well, oh, that's interesting. Uh, so... In, in general, I wanted to, do, to be as, do the smartest work we could do and be as inclusive as we could be. So we actually have a good example of that because we have a clip from one of the uh, SCTV shows, mm, wow. which is um, an adaptation of Stein, a Steinbeck classic, and it's called Grapes of Mud. <laughs> the Grapes of Mud. And oh, I think man. it's... Um, <laughs> Well, you know, it's, you, go yeah. ahead. You want to set it up? I, I can set it up. <laughs> the simple work of... The, Writing sketch comedy is so much fun. You sit around in a room with the, the funniest people you can find, and you just process everything you've seen, everything you've read in the newspaper, everything that's on television, every book you've ever read. So, and, and the simplest joke is the joke of reversal. All right, Grapes of Wrath is about the Okies coming out of the Dust Bowl going to California. Um, Grapes of Mud is about there's just way too much rain, <laughs> and uh, they're, it's, it's, everything's too muddy, so they're leaving Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, and then the rest is a parody of, uh, of the, the film. Okay, so let's yeah. see a, a bit of Grapes of Mud here. Yeah. Hey, mister, you know where a fella goes to find a job around here? Ain't you Tom Jordan? Muley, what are you doing here? It's Mr. Mule now, Tom. A few weeks after you left California, I picked up this leaflet. It said scams wanted to bullet poor migrants. Easy work, good pay, only goons and hooligans need apply. No, Tom, my mother's maiden name was Hooligan. Well, I just want to dust crops. Okay, Tom, I'll give you a job. Here, you can dust off that alfalfa, and when you finish with that, you can start on the wheat. Don't go missing those corners, neither. All right. Say, what's his job pay, anyway? Well, Tom, I can start you at a penny a day, but tomorrow it goes down to a half penny. Day after that, you have to pay me. Now, that don't seem hardly fair. Man can't support a family on that. That's socialist talk, Tom. Boy, you reds really burn my britches. You think this land is urine? Well, it ain't urine. Owning it, renting it out, subdividing it. That, this piece of paper, that's what makes it urine. That makes me mad, Muley. That makes me mean mad. That makes me mean, mad, nasty, fighting bad, mad, bad. It still don't make it urine. Ah, you... Ah! This 
seen that in a long time. Okay. Uh, Joe, Joe Flaherty uh, doing his Henry Fonda. Uh, well, yeah. you, you're great in that. I'm and, doing and John Quaylen, the yeah. actor John Quaylen from the movie <laughs> Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a bit about this, um, how you sort of mix these different uh, career paths of you know, being an actor, writer, director? I wonder how you thought about that, because I understand that early on you really were focused primarily on acting. Is that true? Well, um, you know, acting's the, the first, when you're a kid, the first thing you, re- you respond to, you see a movie you like or a television show you like, and it's, you don't know about writers and directors, you just know the actors. So, you know, you, you want to be the, one of those people. I, I wanted to be some combination of uh, Cary Grant, Errol Flynn, and Harpo Marx. That was, uh, <laughs> that was my, my ideal guy, you know, so... Uh, uh, I started performing every chance I got. Um, I, I was uh, I sang in public. I both played and sang folk music and uh, sang in concert choirs. Uh, sang with um, uh, the Chicago Symphony when I was still in high school. Sang with the St. Louis Symphony in college. Uh, I was an extra in the Lyric Opera in Chicago. I literally carried a spear on the stage in Grand <laughs> Opera and then with the Met when they were on tour and... Um, so I just, I loved performing. I loved um, uh, getting on the stage. We did every comedy skit and sketch in school. I, I did it and took all the theater and speech courses in college. Um, and once I was in college, though, I was, in the 60s, we began to understand how important film directors were. Um, directors, uh, in the old Hollywood studio system, the director was considered the brother-in-law. The producer was the important guy and... and <clears throat> the producers made the films. The directors didn't even edit their own films. They shot them and then left the project. Um, and then in the 60s, we began to see uh, directors really emerge, and uh, European directors and great British directors and Kurosawa. Um, mm-hmm. Suddenly, they became our heroes. David mm-hmm. Lean was mm-hmm. like a, a giant influence on a lot of people in mm-hmm. college in the 60s. Um, so then I thought, yeah, I, I would love to be able to direct feature films someday. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I got out of college, I... Um, I started writing professionally very soon after college as a journalist, and then when I say journalist, I mean <laughs> entertainment journalism, which uh, <clears throat> is uh, a different kind of journalism. It requires no, you don't have to be correct, you don't have to be true, <laughs> no one cares, and whatever you write is going to be in the trash in a day or two. So uh, it's guilt-free and uh, responsibility-free journalism. <laughs> Uh, but I, worked, I was an editor at Playboy magazine for 18 months, and during that time I got on the stage at Second City, but always thinking that I was going to parlay my writing skills and my acting skills into a directing job. Uh, and during this period in the, in the 70s, um, you made the transition from live, Second City live, live to the show, um, and then some of the performers uh, went to New York to do Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And could you talk about that? Because you were, in, you were invited to join... SNL, right? Well, we all made a transitional step to New York. John Belushi, uh, I started taking sabbaticals from Second City in the early 70s. Uh, John Belushi was hired as a replacement for me. When I came back, we were together at Second City for probably a couple of years. And then John was uh, hired by National Lampoon to do a show called Lemmings, which was a very popular cabaret show. It was the whole second act was a parody of the Woodstock Music Festival. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was great. People loved it. Um, Chevy Chase was in it. Christopher Guest was in it. Uh, John was in it. They did brilliant rock and roll parody. And um, the show was wildly successful. The Lampoon decided they wanted a resident improv company. So, um, and they let John Belushi run it. And John reached back to Second City and brought um, 
Gilda Radner from the Toronto Second City, um, me, Bill Murray, and Brian Murray and Joe Flaherty to be the in-house company at Lampoon. So we were working in New York, 74, 75. We did a cabaret show uh, in Rockefeller Center, and then uh, I, I took off to direct the first thing I ever did for a camera, which was in L.A. for public television with my old friend and partner, Michael Schamberg, who's now a film producer. And um, in the meantime, Lauren Michaels was casting Saturday Night. So I'm not saying he would have hired me if I was there. Uh, he, <laughs> Lauren was not interested, I was told, in ethnic types at the beginning. Mm. Uh, so um, <laughs> in the meantime, I started, we started working on the treatment for Animal House, and um, Saturday night began. And, uh, and then uh, John Belushi uh, wanted me to come to New York and uh, join the staff there. And Lauren offered me a job. But I was already the head writer and performing every week on SCTV, and mm. it seemed like a terrible... Uh, almost traitorous to leave SCTV to do Saturday Night. And also I felt we were well along in the screenplay of Animal House. I thought I, I will not be doing sketch comedy very long if this movie oh, okay. is as good as we think it's going to be. Oh, okay. So you really had that, uh, that uh, project already in the works, yeah. Animal House. Yeah. Okay. Well, I do want... Um, before we look at the clip from that, I just want to ask about this Michael Schamberg thing. That was TV yeah. TV. It was yeah. that sort of a guerrilla video. <clears throat> yeah, Michael and I went through college together. We were best friends in college, and um, we wrote sketch shows in college and stuff. And, uh, and then uh, we both did entry-level journalism. Michael was a, worked for Time magazine, and um, I worked for Playboy and the Chicago Daily News. And then he, he got real interested in, in the very beginnings of uh, personal video. As soon as there was a portable, affordable video camera, Michael started buying them and uh, using them for, for, uh, to create alternative forms of media that no one had ever seen before. Uh, and the first big thing they did was an alternative news gathering uh, group called TVTV. They covered the political convention, the national conventions in the early 70s, and yeah. the stuff was great because yeah. the, they thought of themselves as video gorillas. In fact, his book is called Gorilla Television. Um, and they just started covering national events from a completely different point of view. It was, it was not a network point of view. It was not a corporate point of view. Hmm. It was really countercultural and very smart, and the work was really well done. And um, so the first thing I directed, Michael hired me to direct their first fictional program, hmm. but all shot on portable uh, video, um, Sony video, uh, hmm. half-inch tape and portable okay. cameras. Well, we don't have that tonight, but we have this uh, little film called Animal House, which uh, opened, and as I said, I remember very vividly when it opened because it really just, there hadn't really been a comedy quite like that before, I I think. I think it really changed things, and I think it's, uh, so this clip will sort of speak for itself because it unleashed John Belushi as an incredible film actor. So let's see the clip from Animal House. What's this lying around shit? Well, what the hell is supposed to do, you moron? War's over, man. Wormer dropped the big one. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! Germans? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. Because when the going gets tough... The tough get going! Who's with me? Let's go! Come on! Ah! 
What the fuck happened to the Delta I used to know? Where's the spirit? Where's the guts? Huh? This could be the greatest night of our lives. But you're gonna let it be the worst. Oh, we're afraid to go with you, Bluto. We might get in trouble. Well, just kiss my ass from now on! Not me! I'm not gonna take this! Warmer, he's a dead man! Marmalade, dead! Niedermeyer! Dead. Pluto's right. Psychotic, but absolutely right. We gotta take these bastards. Now, we could fight them with conventional weapons. That could take years and cost millions of lives. No, no, no. No, in this case, I think we have to go all out. I think this situation absolutely requires a really futile and stupid gesture be done on somebody's part. We're just the guys to do it. Let's do it. Very inspirational. You're kind of known for these takeoffs of um, inspirational speeches. Yeah. There are a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, there's another one in this movie, which uh, I think it's when Tim Matheson stands up and their, their, their charters are being reviewed by the disciplinary board or whatever. And he tells us, or no, it's, he's telling a story, of, uh, it's a pledge class. He's telling a story of another loser. <laughs> and it ends with, and that man's name was Dog Hammarskjöld. <laughs> 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 Secretary General of the United Nations. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, those, those certain rallying speeches. Yeah. Yeah. And you, but you said you, you sort of had a sense that this was going to be big while you, while you were writing it. So what, what was the you know, inspiration to do this, and how did you know it was going to hit? Well, we were in college in the 60s, and you know, I won't rehash the entire history <laughs> of the 60s, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it, we entered the 60s uh, with Father Knows Best and Ozzie and Harriet and, uh, and then Camelot, you know, John Kennedy, and we, we, everyone was neat and trim, and we thought we really believed in the future. And, um, and then came, in quick succession, the free speech movement, the civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam, uh, and a lot of, dis- after following the Kennedy assassination, a lot of disillusionment, a lot of anger, and a, a real a, a rediscovery of the power of uh, of anarchy and revolution, um, and fraternity life was uh, it, that was all kind of uh, nascent in uh, in fraternity life. Uh, it, it seemed like our job in college, even before there were political issues, was to rebel against everything. Uh, remember the old Marlon Brando line in, uh, in Rebel? Right. With, uh, no, in uh, the Wild, Wild One. Yeah, yeah right. what are you rebelling against? What do you got? Uh, <laughs> And, and that was us, you know. It was a knee-jerk kind of contrarian, uh, just revolution for the fun of it. There, what was that book, Revolution for the Hell of It? So um, no one had kind of mobile... Uh, people who tried to do political expressions of that energy, it was miserable. Uh, no one did good comedy about the 60s, about hippies or about the 
political movements. But by taking that sensibility and putting it, um, setting it before all the political issues, in our minds, the last day of this film is, is the day before Kennedy is killed. It's homecoming 1963, November. For us, it was November yeah. 22nd. Then he's killed on the 23rd, and nothing's the same, the yeah. same after that. So um, no one had represented that energy and that spirit uh, on, on film before. And you know, we buried the politics, which meant it wasn't polarizing to anybody, uh, 60s being the most polarizing period probably in the last well, 75 years or so. Um, and yet we were able to kind of capture a nostalgia for college life that everybody related to. People who had been to college literally in 1920 told me, it's just like my fraternity. You know, it's like, um, and of course, it sparked a great resurgence in, uh, in Greek life on campuses. The Greek membership went up uh, tremendously. It's, it was, it's been well documented in, in, in Greek life. Uh, and it was a very mixed blessing for the fraternity system. First, they were so happy. People were coming back to uh, the fraternities. And then they realized everyone was coming back expecting the Animal House experience. Which was not good for the reputations of fraternities. <laughs> so, two of the this is one of the films, of course, that you wrote but didn't direct. I wanted to ask in in the way you see your job as a writer on these films. Uh, one thing I think that comes up over and over again in, in reading about your work on scripts is that you really bring a shape, an overall shape to a film. So, this didn't just have the set pieces and Belushi going wild, but it really had a, a shaped story of um, you know one class versus another. Um, and then, I, so I want to ask how important that is to you, and also how important it is to be open to improvisation. You know, when you work with a, uh, an actor like Belushi, you, there's got to be some freedom, I assume. On the set. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, first, l let me you know make sure everyone knows I didn't write this alone. Doug right. Kenny, the late Doug Kenny, who was a stork in the clip you saw. What are we supposed to do, you moron? That's Doug Kenny, a Harvard graduate. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, the comedy genius is not an overstatement uh, for Doug. And Chris Miller, who was the resident uh, keeper of college lore for the National Lampoon. He wrote stories about his own fraternity at Dartmouth, Alpha Delta Phi, which was a legendary animal fraternity. Um, so, I mean, together we, uh, we kind of created this picture. But um, uh, Doug had an idea... Uh, his, his goal was to create a new kind of American film which he described as a hip Disney film. He, he, thought, he thought Disney films really had an American spirit and a popularity that was irresistible, just the way they kind of portrayed life. But he thought if we could twist it with our own sensibility uh, and introduce an element of cruelty, an element of reality to it, that we would have both. We'd have you know, real entertainment values and, and, and our, our real kind of social and political values yeah. fused into it. You know. So an idea of populism is important yeah. underneath. Um, and then, but the and, cynical populism. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and, and then in terms of improvisation, in terms of how, how you know, free you well, are. Well, this movie, John, John Landis directed this film. The script was so tight, and he yeah. had a very tight shooting schedule. There wasn't a lot of room for him to improvise. And I think he really wanted to get the script down. There's not a lot of improv in, in Animal House, although Belushi would have been capable of it. Uh, there isn't much. It's, it's very close to the script we wrote. Um, I think Ivan Reitman's films, uh, the ones I worked on as a writer and actor, and the ones I directed, 
have tons of improv because I think we all felt we felt more comfortable with it than Landis did. John Landis is uh, I won't say he's a control freak, but he's um, his films are tighter. Uh, they're probably better films in, in a cinematic sense, but they don't have that kind of uh, the messiness of that improv will bring into a. So he's a kind film. of a control freak, is what you're saying. <laughs> Not here, is he? No, <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah. Now, of course. The film is a huge success, and then the next film was Meatballs, which was right. I I, yeah, and I worked. I get credit for it, and I worked about a, a, maybe four weeks on okay. it. Ivan, Ivan, uh, there was an interesting phenomenon after Animal House came out. Uh, producers were literally waiting in the lobby to meet us. Right, and it was a great thing to be new to Hollywood uh, and be welcomed. Was is it's just the opposite of what uh, what everyone thinks that that period of struggle is about. Uh, they wanted to meet us. Uh, and they wanted to meet the actors of Animal House, and everyone wanted to talk to John Landis. Ivan Reitman noticed no one wants to talk to the producer. Right. <laughs> so, so he thought he'd better direct a film fast, because he had studied directing in college. So he raised uh, about a million dollars independently in Canada and, and financed a script written by friends of his, uh, Dan Goldberg, Len Bloom, and someone else I can't remember, uh, for a summer camp comedy. They all had a shared a summer camp experience. He thought it was a way to do Animal House, maybe for kids a little bit younger. And he uh, recruited Bill Murray into it. And um, uh, he knew that Bill trusted me. And the script was not great. Uh, and it, so I doctored the script. And Bill agreed to do the movie. And then he shot it. Uh, and it still wasn't great. <laughs> and then um, I looked at the film and kind of analyzed what the problems were. Did another week of writing. He did a week of reshoots, and then suddenly every studio <clears throat> wanted to buy the film. So. Yeah, and it was a huge hit. Yeah. I did want to ask you, I, I had read that after Animal House that you had an idea of doing a film about the Nazi marches in Skokie, yeah. uh, but couldn't get that made for some reason in Hollywood. So could, well, you, uh, uh, could you talk about that? <laughs> One of the most eager producers uh, to contact me after, actually contacted Doug Kenny and I, was John Peters. Uh, John was well-known. He was a very successful hairdresser who'd uh, used his connection to Hollywood stars to become a producer and a very charming guy, very energetic. And you kind of, there was something funny about John, uh, not intentionally, but he was very effective actually. So um, he asked us what movies we wanted to do. Uh, Doug had an idea for an, uh, a film about a young American seeker, college gradu- recent college graduate, goes to Tibet and ends up helping the Tibetans resist the Chinese invasion <laughs> by calling down a psychedelic flaming mandalas that would <laughs> knock the MiG aircraft out of the air. And, and John just looked at him like, what? <laughs> and he said, then he turned to me and said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, uh, I want to do a, a very dark comedy about the uh, American Nazi party marching in Skokie, Illinois which was the largest Jewish community in America, I think, at the time. And it never happened. But I thought the, the run-up to the event, the, the fear on everyone's part, I wanted to portray these Nazis. I wanted to portray the panic in the Jewish community. And, uh, and I thought it would be funny, you know, and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is actually a good character story. John, says, John calls me and says... I. Uh, I talked to Orion, Mike Medavoy, who was a major producer at a and studio, Orion, and yeah. he said, uh, Mike loves the idea, he wants to do it. 
I said, great. So he says, all you have to do, we'll, we'll take one, just one meeting, kind of a rubber stamp, just, you know, prof, you just tell the idea, they'll make the deal. I said, great. So I go there with John, and um, I start telling the idea, and Mike Medevoy says, you know, it could be funny, but it's very controversial. He said, you know, one bomb threat on the theater, and we'd be, they'd, they'd pull the movie from every theater in the country. And uh, he said, so, you know, is there, do you have anything else? And John Peters leaps to his feet and says, how dare you? This is an insult to this man. I brought this man here thinking you were doing this movie. I am, this is insulting. I, I, I will not stand here and see you insult this man. And he leaves, the, he storms out of the room. <laughs> leaving me sitting there alone with Mike Medavoy. <laughs> so, and I don't know, it felt like almost like they'd rehearsed it or something, you know. Uh, and... Uh, so I was just, I kind of laughed and I said, wow, well, <laughs> so what now? He said, well, you know, why don't, why don't you think of something else? Uh, I was right back with a, um, a Marxist Western. <laughs> uh, revisionist Marxist Western. Uh, and then Mike again said, you know, maybe for the first film you direct, you should do something urban and contemporary. And uh, those words stuck with me and... Uh, <laughs> Doug and uh, Brian Doyle Murray, my old friend and partner, were, uh, had an idea for a country club comedy, and we did okay. Caddyshack for Mike. I was wondering how we, yeah. 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 <laughs> I was wondering how we were going to segue to Caddyshack. Yeah, after they that, didn't but... do the Marxist way. Okay, no. so actually, what we'll do um, is is set up a clip. Now, of course, Caddyshack, um, in addition to being a great career boost for Rodney Dangerfield, um, you know, who just made him like a huge movie star. Um, well. Paired up Bill Murray. It, well, it had, had Bill Murray and Chevy Chase um, in it. Um, and I believe at some point you realized that they didn't have a scene together. Yeah, John Peters realized. Okay, they realized. Didn't have a scene together. Right. Um, yeah. So this, so anyhow, this scene was devised. We'll, we'll see a, a, a bit of it. The scene actually goes on a bit longer. But yeah. let's look at, a, okay. at Bill Murray and Chevy Chase um, in Caddyshack. All right, show yourself, you little varmint. You got the guts. You son of a bitch. Where'd you go? Oh, hi, Carl. How you doing? Oh, uh, hi. Hi. Mind if I play through? Uh, sure, go right ahead. What are you, getting in a late night or something? Yeah, I was just loosening up a bit. Now, was that uh, your ball I heard rambling through? Yeah, did you see my ball? Hello? Tight list? That's it. Yeah, it's right here. Is this your place, Carl? Yeah, what do you think? It's really, uh, it's really awful. Well, I have a lot of things that are on order. You know, credit trouble. Uh, I'm an assistant greenskeeper. They say that doesn't mean anything, you know, until I'm the head greenskeeper. Uh, can you give me a ruling on this? Well, oh, sit down. Come on. Make no, I don't, I don't want to stick to anything in here. Uh, well, here, take this anything. thing off. This is dirty. Not, don't go to too much trouble, please. Here, fire up. Uh, with my lips? Yeah. I don't think right so, in. Carl. Just right back. If I could just borrow a wedge or something and get right... If you can open a curtain up out there somewhere, I can get right through that window. People anyway. say, you know, I'm an idiot or something because all I do is cut lines for a living, you know? Oh, uh, people don't say that about you as far as you know. Well, I'm working on it, you know, so I don't ever have to... You know, I'm going to be the head greenskeeper. Hopefully within six years, that's my, my schedule. But I, I'm studying a lot of this stuff so I know it, you know, like, uh, you know, 
chinch bugs, you know, manganese. A lot of people don't even know what that is. You know. Great, Carl. Can I get a nitrogen? You know, it's just over a curtain or something over there, and I can just get right. I up. invented my own kind of grass too. Do you know that? Look at this. This is registered. Carl Spackler Bent. Oh yeah, I've felt grass like this before. I've played on this. Stuff. This is a hybrid. This is a cross, uh, a bluegrass, Kentucky bluegrass uh, featherbed bent, and uh, Northern California sensimia. The amazing stuff about this is that you can play 36 holes on it in the afternoon, take it home and just get stoned to the Jesus belt that night on this stuff. I got pounds of this stuff. Here. No, thank you. No, I don't, I don't, uh... Sir, let's have a little bit of this. I get the big Bob Marley joint. Look at this. Here, try this. Carl, I, uh, I really don't do this very often. You're gonna love it. This is dynamite hack. Watch out for this. Well, well maybe one drag, I got to go. It's a little harsh, <coughs> but here, cannonball it. <coughs> then go right back. <coughs> and then one more, he's right on top of it. Cannonball! Cannonball coming. Cannonball coming. No! <coughs> Carl? <coughs> Can I have a drop? Just a drop? Myself? <coughs> That's fine for me. That's good. <laughs> yeah, uh... yeah. There's a story there. <laughs> the, 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 Chevy and Bill had not really seen each other uh, since uh, Chevy came back to guest host on Saturday Night Live. And uh, at that time, uh, they'd actually had a physical scuffle in the hallway, I'm told. Some punches were thrown. Uh, it was, you know, two alpha males uh, contending to see who's top comedy dog. Mm. Uh, so there was bad blood, I was told. Mm. Uh, and we had no scripted scene between the two of them. I had Bill Murray for six days on the film. Everything he did in the movie happened in six days. Right. And all improvised. There's only one scripted speech he did in the whole film. Um, and Chevy, we were improvising a lot with Chevy. <clears throat> so uh, finally John Peters said, uh, you got to have these guys together in a scene. And I thought, all right, well... <laughs> Just as a matter of diplomacy, that's going to be tricky. But also what happens creatively. There was nothing in the, in the plot that would indicate yeah. them getting together. So we created this terribly thin premise of Chevy kind of wasted playing golf at night. It's the night before the big tournament. And uh, so what we did was um, I kind of imagined what Carl's apartment might look like <laughs> in the shed. And I asked our... our set decorators to start constructing it. I said, get, get a car seat, put a blanket over it, get a big wooden wire spool for a table, and pile up some bags. So they were working on the, on the physical set, and Chevy and Bill and I and Doug Kenny and Brian Murray just sat down at lunch and said, all right, what happens? You know, and we started laying it out like an improv, and, and the, that whole scene is virtually an improv, and I shot it from enough angles so I could edit it. But there's a lot in Caddyshack. Uh, the New York Times uh, called Caddyshack an amiable mess. Which I, thought, well, I was happy for the amiable part. The, right. the mess part was pretty true, I thought. <laughs> well, the film did okay anyway. It so, did fine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and survives to this day. Yeah. And, and, and what was it like finally being in the director's seat? I mean, what was that experience? Um, oh, and, well, uh, 
I, I, I started referring to it as the $9 million scholarship to film school. Uh, I, knew, I knew very little about camera. I, I knew what films looked like. I had kind of internalized the... the and I'd written you know, that, that script and the Animal House script. So I, I knew... I always thought that the writer does... 90% of the director's work in terms of visualizing the film, knowing how, it's, how it should look, knowing how it should sound and feel. There, there's a tremendous, obviously there's a tremendous uh, kind of executive function that a director performs, just managing all the personnel, managing the relationships with actors. That doesn't come with the writing. But um, I sort of knew what the, how the film was supposed to go. I had good people around me, uh, and uh, I made some mistakes at first. Uh, I had a horrible first day. Uh, I shot a scene. Uh, first, uh, we were shooting out in the middle of the golf course, and the uh, first shot, literally first shot of the movie, the assistant director says, where should we put the camera? Oh. I looked around. I saw green all around me, just green. I said, well, we'll shoot that way, and trying to sound like I knew something. And uh, he looked, and the crew looked, and they said, so... Uh, you want us to move the generator and the lunch tent and all the trailers <laughs> and all the vehicles? And I said, oh, is that what that stuff is? No, no. Let's uh, leave that there. <laughs> Let's not shoot. And then I realized that um, it wasn't important that I know, only that I find out what the best solution was. So I turned to the cameraman and said, where do you think we should put the camera? And then I, I learned there's no shame in asking questions. There's no shame in not knowing I realized I could not bluff my way through a whole movie. Better if I just take a humble position. And, and, and I realized that you don't have to know everything. You just have, the director's job is answering a thousand questions a day. Uh, if, if the customer comes up to you and says, which hat, this hat or this hat? You don't have to know anything about hats. You don't have to know anything about the history of wardrobe <laughs> to pick a hat, right? Yeah. Um, so a lot of decisions were just, you like this frame or this frame? You don't have to know much about the camera to, to know what you like. So I just kept asking questions and answering questions. One of the, I think, really good things about your work as a director is the way that you're not, you don't try to show off as a director with fancy camera shots. And you also yeah, let well. the, you really know how to let the um, chemistry between the actors be the main thing. So that's, like this scene that we just saw a piece of, um, you know, it has great jokes in it, but it's really about this kind of ca- character chemistry. Well, unless you are Woody Allen and you can craft a script that is actually a piece of literature, uh, then every major comedy is, is really owes its success uh, to the actors. There's, there is no great comedy that doesn't have a great comedy performance at the heart of it. And I would much rather sacrifice the shot for the performance or... Make I could, you know make a very poor edit or uh, have terrible continuity if if the performance is there I don't think I think the audience would rather laugh than see perfect editing or, or know that everything matches perfectly so I, I'm all about the actor I'm all about that relationship on the set I try to minimize the the technical stuff some movies you can't I mean, I've done Multiplicity for instance a very technical movie uh, Bedazzled was pretty technical and. Year one is uh, the scale of it. it demanded a lot of uh, logistical planning and a, a, that stuff. Get when you're working with oxen, you know the <laughs> the, uh, the actors may have to wait a moment while they. Right. Uh, you know, you know. Well, of course, Ghostbusters um, was 
pretty fairly lavish. I mean, and it, it um, came out, I guess, at a time when we were, had just started to see the string of big summer movies, the idea of the kind of big summer blockbuster that really took off with Jaws, and then, you know, there was Alien, and there were a bunch of big movies, and Ghostbusters kind of fits into that. So that, talk about the genesis of that. Was that really Dan Aykroyd? Um, oh, yeah. And, and who's a very ambitious writer, from what I understand. Oh, yeah, Dan, and they're very prolific. Uh, Dan really loved working with John Belushi, and they had enjoyed such a great success with the Blues Brothers. Dan uh, really intended to follow it with you know, uh, as many new pairings as he could figure out. And, and one of them, uh, he, Spies Like Us was one of them, which he ended up doing with Chevy, uh, and, um, and Ghostbusters was another one. Uh, that he intended to do with John Belushi. And, and John had passed away in, I guess, 81. Yeah. So in 83, uh, Dan brought Ghostbusters to Ivan Reitman uh, and said, uh, why don't I do this? You know, I'd like to do this movie. Maybe I can do it with Bill Murray. And Ivan had already had you know, considerable success with Bill, now twice at that point, Meatballs and Stripes. And um, Ivan, uh, and I love him for this, uh, said to Dan, you know, what we should really do is get Ramis, you know, and you guys rewrite the script and, and let Harold be the third Ghostbuster. Right. Because I had been in Stripes. Stripes, yeah. And I think Ivan, you know, it's not so much that he loved my acting. I think he loved having a, a good writer for Bill standing next to him, <laughs> which is a lot of what I did. You know, it's, uh, I, I was... People always said, well, were you the class clown? I said, no, I wrote for the class clown. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that means you stand next to someone who's really, who's got a lot more nerve than you right. do. And you just say, hey, why don't you say this? And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and we have I, a lot of writers in the audience. All right, now. yeah. So a lot of the Writers Guild is here. Okay, cool. Well, I had that with Bill. I mean, I was, I, I was able to think in any of those voices he had. Uh, and he knew it, and, and it was good. And, and Ivan, I, Stripes was good for us, and uh, Ivan kind of believed in me. Uh, and Dan I knew socially, but he didn't really know what collaborating would be like. Uh, but I, we knew his script was way over the top. It was unmakeable. The way Just in ter- what was un. Makeable well, if yeah. those who saw the movie, well, so I think a few. There's a, there's a large marshmallow man at the uh, end of Ghostbusters. Uh, uh, it's an 80 foot marshmallow man, you know, attacking the city. Uh, that happened on page 50 of Bill of Dan's original script, and it got bigger after oh, that. Okay. <laughs> the whole last act took place in another dimension that bore no physical relationship to our own. Uh, <laughs> Which meant the whole last third of the movie would have been uh, a special effect, one giant green screen, you know. Wow. Uh, impossible to do. And it really lost the connection with what made it funny in the first place. Uh, every, we all knew right away that what's funny is treating the, the supernatural in, uh, in a completely mundane way. Yeah. No one had done that before. Uh, and as soon as we went into fantasy land, th- that connection was broken. So Ivan and I had the same thought. Um, let's make it, let's show the origin of the Ghostbusters. Dan's script started with them already functioning. In fact, there were multiple Ghostbuster franchises around the city. They were like the Orkin Man, you know. The <laughs> <clears throat> so we, and, and in Dan's script, the, the featured Ghostbusters were just one of many teams. Uh, we thought, no, this, let's show how Ghostbusters began as a business. 
and let's make them academics. And so we could actually take the audience on the kind of uh, intellectual, take them through the intellectual process of coming to a place of believing in ghosts and creating a, a pseudoscience for it and a pseudo-mythology that the audience could actually track. And, of course, you play the scientist in the film. Yeah. I mean, so how, could you talk about how you develop your character and, and look? Uh, of yeah, <laughs> my character, uh, I, I was thinking about him, and uh, <clears throat> I was flipping through, uh, as I am wont to do, a, uh, a futurist architectural journal. <clears throat> uh, not really, but I, I, it was lying there on a table somewhere, <clears throat> and there was a, a visionary architect named Leon Creer, K-R-I-E-R, and, and it's pretty much Egon Spengler. He had tall hair standing straight up and round glasses and a th- an old three-piece tweed suit from another generation. I thought, God, that's the guy. And the name I took from uh, Egon Donsbeck, who was a Hungarian refugee who came to my grammar school uh, in the, after the 54 uprising. <laughs> I like the name Egon. And also then later I knew about Egon Schiele, the expressionist painter. Right. And uh, Spengler came from Oswald Spengler. Okay. Uh, so, and I thought, I'm going to play a character. I realized that in Stripes, I did nothing but smile through the whole movie. Right. And it was a smile of, you know, a, a desperate smile of an actor who shouldn't be there. <laughs> Basically saying to the audience, please like me. And I was like, you know. So you decided so, not to smile. I said, all right, in Ghostbusters, I'm not going to smile once in the whole movie. You know. And they still love you. So, yeah, there um, you go. Well, let's look. This is a, the scene we're about to see is uh, just a great example of how this movie mixes comedy and, and sort of horror and shock. Okay. So let's see a uh, key moment from early on in Ghostbusters. here a full torso apparition and it's real so what do we do could you come over here and talk to me for a second please could you just come over here for a second please right over here come here Francine come here what do we do contact. One of us should actually try to speak to it. Good idea. Hello. I'm Peter. Where are you from? Originally. All right. Okay. The usual stuff isn't working. Okay. I have a plan. I know exactly what to do. Now stay close. Stay close. I know. Do exactly as I say. Get ready. Ready? Get her! So I remember seeing that in a big packed house, you know, I think probably in like Hicksville, Long Island, and, and with an audience that screamed at that moment. And, mm-hmm. and, to, and you must have really known sort of with that 
moment that you had a huge, th you know, huge hit because it had the laughs in there. Yeah, it was. It, uh, it felt like very similar to the feeling we had when we were writing Animal House. We, uh, it, it wasn't. I guess it was arrogant. We could have been wrong, but uh, when we were writing Animal House, we thought this is going to be huge. We, we've not seen this movie before, and we don't think our generation has either. Uh, and same with Ghostbusters. We thought no one has seen this, and it was really tight. The script was so tight, and everyone who read it just loved it. So. You know, a lot of times you start a project and there's, you go into the principal photography with people still worried about the script, not sure it's going to work. And I've had that feeling myself. But in this case, no one doubted for a second that this mm. was going to work. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now, it, it was... Um, could you talk a bit about, the, I guess, the period uh, after Groundhog Day that we're going to look at something... Um, the next clip we're going to see is, is um, from Groundhog Day. Right, let me uh, point a, out, though, a, yeah. correcting David Cross, it, the, the movie was shown at the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> oh, metro, at the Metropolitan... Oh, at museum, MoMA. Oh, yeah. MoMA, okay. Yeah. Museum of Modern Art, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> museum of Modern Art. I'm from Chicago. Uh, but MoMA showed it uh, as part... They had a festival, a film festival, um, called uh, The Hidden God, Films of Faith. Oh, and right, And they decided right. to open the festival with Groundhog Day. Oh, Groundhog Day, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, could you talk a, a, a bit about the period between Ghostbusters and Groundhog Day? I guess that was a... Yeah. <laughs> my you wife, check with your family? My okay. wife, Erica, is there. Okay. Uh, uh, I fell in love and started a new life with uh, Erica between... We, we made a movie... Um, uh, Erica worked on my film, Club Paradise. Mm. We, um, Just in 86. We... Yeah. we Wanted to make, I was trying to make a, an homage to the Ealing and Bolting Brothers comedies uh, and also a Python-esque. It was sort of, uh, I had the notion from Faulty Towers that if I took John Cleese and instead of having him run a small hotel, have him be the governor general of a, of a British possession in the West Indies, uh, that that could be very funny. And I thought I'd get Bill Murray to play an American expatriate who's like a, a, a white Rasta. Just a you know a reggae man you know just who crashed on a beach years before and hasn't left, and just um, was really into island culture, and I thought the playing those two guys against each other would be huge. I thought <laughs> you know my two favorite com giants, comedy giants, neither of them ended up. They both said they'd do it, and then both of them pulled out. So I ended up with um, Peter O'Toole, who loved the script and jumped on it immediately, and Robin Williams also mm -hmm. wanted to do it. But their sensibilities were very different from Cleese. Cleese is high energy, uh, and um, uh, O'Toole was low-key. Robin is high energy, and Bill is low-key. So mm -hmm. the polarity of the film flipped, and we never adjusted the script. Mm -hmm. However, we did have the best time of our <laughs> lives making this film. We were in Jamaica for like four months, and we had to write it in the West Indies, of course, Brian Murray and I. And um, when the film was over, my daughter Violet was, uh, accompanied us down there. And when the film was over, um, no one liked it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember uh, the head of publicity for Warner Brothers, who financed the film, said, all right, Harold, let's face it, this is not your best movie. Which, uh, it hurt, because I had invested the film. It, it had a great ideas. There's some wonderful things in it, great people in it. Um, but it wasn't a success. And it was kind of bracing. But more than that, I, uh, it, it, it's... 
I cooled off a little career-wise. I did start some projects. I started my Marxist Western. <laughs> I got Universal Finance to script on that. I, we I, should say that Pauline Kael liked Club Paradise. Pauline Kael loved... I got, the movie got two rave reviews. Pauline Kael in The New Yorker and Reggae Beat Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> but I did put two other movies in development. One was uh, a kind of a, a modern odyssey. I'd spent a lot of time in the Greek islands in the mm-hmm. 70s, and I, I wrote kind of uh, th- three kind of wandering uh, rascals uh, lying and bullshitting their way through European society. It started on a Greek island, and they yeah. took off from there. Uh, and then I changed that so they were American servicemen overseas living on an American base, and mm-hmm. then they kind of go AWOL. Uh, and neither script really came to fruition. The Marxist Western was a good idea, and still someday I hope to do that. But uh, <laughs> um, So I, I, was, I was more interested in kind of ref- getting my personal life together for a, long, for a couple of years. Um, uh, and that was good. Uh, you know, one marriage ended, and our re- relationship began. And, um, and I'd, I'd already... I was like 40 when Ghostbusters came out. And all the things you think you want to do and be when you're 40, everyone, you know, if you're coming from where I came from, uh, I wanted to be famous, I wanted to be rich, you know, I wanted to make feature films. And here I was, 40 years old, perfect time for a nice little midlife crisis. And <laughs> I thought, well, you know, what's, what's that gotten me? Am I happier? Am I better off? Uh, am, am I a better person? Well, no. Uh, as my rabbi is fond of saying, uh, you can never get enough of what you don't really need. Mm. So uh, there's, there's <laughs> wisdom in that. And uh, yeah. I thought, I don't need more money or more success or more movies. I need to figure out you know, who I am, what I'm doing, and why I'm doing it, and get my personal life together. And, uh, and that's sort of what happened. And then when that period was over, uh, new projects were ready to go. Uh, so what you're talking about, it must, it must have been very resonant then to see the script for Groundhog Day, which is about a, somebody who kind of, you know, reinvents himself. Yeah, and I resisted it too. Uh, my my really? producing partner, Trevor Albert, uh, read the script first. It was written as a work sample for Danny Rubin. Danny Rubin, the original writer, uh, just floated it out there to agents and studios. And uh, uh, it was a spec. And uh, Trevor said, oh, you should read this thing. I said, what is, what's it about? He said, the guy relives the same day over and over again for a long time. I said, you know, sounds tricky. It, you know, it's like, it's too high concept, whatever. And a week went by. He said, you got to read this. He said, you really got to read it. So I read it. And, uh, and I, could, I was crying by the end of it. And I, I, and I actually... It sounds cheesy, but I said to myself, well, you know, this could be, it's a wonderful life for our generation. Uh, and then uh, we started working. I, I, I worked without Danny Rubin first. I rewrote the script the way I thought it should go and then brought Danny back. And, uh, and, and was Bill Murray, uh, you know, the idea from the beginning? Because it's it's, it is your most critically acclaimed film. It's, it's a great performance from him. It sort of changed... Um, how he was seen as an actor, but he yeah. wasn't an, an obvious choice, I think. Well, in a way, he is the obvious choice if you knew him. Uh, yeah. But in fact, we had our, our last work together had been on Ghostbusters Two, and I, Bill's a strange and difficult man. Uh, he's, it's legendary. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, it would be no surprise to anyone who reads the tabloid press. He's, you know, he, he can be trouble and. Um, 
And I thought he'd gotten really cranky. I, I thought he was kind of souring on his own career mm. in a certain way. And he was very cranky on the second Ghostbusters. Still brilliant, but and still capable of incredible generosity and kindness. And then he could be, in a minute later, be the worst guy you've ever met. And scary. Uh, uh, so I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to work with him on, on Groundhog Day. And uh, Tom Hanks was... Uh, had already achieved a, a lot of popularity and re- is really good, and I like Tom a lot. And I offered it to Tom Hanks, and he, he's, he passed. He was doing something else or whatever. And uh, and studio finally said, oh, well, just get Bill. You know, he'll be perfect. And, in fact, I could see how he would be perfect. I just wasn't sure how the experience would be. Uh, but it was fine. We we did the movie, and uh, and it was great, and he was great. A year later, Tom Hanks said to me, uh, he said, you know, he was perfect for it. I would have been bad, he said, because if I had done it, everyone would have just, they know I'm a nice guy. They would have just been waiting for me to make that turn, no matter how mean I was in the first half of the film. He said, with Bill, you just never know. (laughs) He's so, and it's true, he's so mercurial and he's so convincingly mean. Uh, It really was a great performance. Yeah. So, and, and it's uh, it, it's a great concept because the idea that you can, you know, sort of rework your life, that you can redo moments um, until you get it right, I think is probably somebody that everybody can relate to. So, um, we're going to see a clip where I think that's really distilled. It's it's a um, scene in in a bar. We'll see, uh, well, I'll, we'll just let let the scene speak for itself. So, let's go to the clip from Groundhog Day. So, what are the chances of getting out today? The van still won't start. Larry's working on it. Wouldn't you know it. Can I buy you a drink? Okay. Jim Beam, ice, water. For you, miss? Sweet vermouth and the rocks with a twist, please. What are the chances of getting out of town today? The van still won't start. Larry's working on it. Oh, wouldn't you know it. Can I buy you a drink? Okay. Uh, sweet vermouth, rocks with a twist, please. For you, miss? The same. That's my favorite drink. Mine, too. It always makes me think of Rome. The way the sun hits the buildings in the afternoon. Huh. What should we drink to? To the groundhog. I always drink world peace. Can I buy you a drink? Okay. Uh, sweet vermouth, rocks with a twist, please. For you, miss? The same. That's my favorite drink. Mine, too. <laughs> It always makes me think of Rome. The way the sun hits the buildings in the afternoon. Well, what should we drink to? I like to say a prayer and drink to world peace. To world peace. World peace.
And Bert, Murray, he just walks that line where he's, he's such a weasel, but he's, he is really sympathetic. And, you, and you're, um, you know, what's great about the way the film works is that it really believes in the love story. Like, it's able yeah. to pull that off. But one thing I learned about Bill early was he, he can get away with doing some of the meanest things I've ever seen. Uh, and in fact, I tested it in Ghostbusters. Um, <laughs> when we were writing the, his first scene in, in Ghostbusters... Uh, He's, he's administering a uh, psychological <laughs> test <Yeah. laughs> to a young student. Uh, it's, it's testing the kids, uh, an attractive young girl and a guy, and he's right. testing their ESP abilities, holding up cards. Uh, and every time the girl gets a wrong answer, he praises her and says she got it right. Every time the guy gives an answer, even if he's right, he gives them an electric shock. <laughs> And, and it was so mean and so unfair. I thought, can the audience embrace a hero who would just arbitrarily give electric shocks to another person? I was thinking of the Milgram experiment when I was, uh, you know, where <laughs> students were induced to give shocks to other people. Uh, and people loved it. They didn't care. And Bill, can, he's, he's, such a, he's a rascal, and he can get away with this stuff, you know? mm-hmm. And what did, what did the film mean to you? You've talked about, about the response that the film got from so many different religious groups, you said it played, you know, opened this um, film about spirituality and God, this film series about God and yeah, spirituality. Right, yeah. So what, what, did, what was it, uh, what was the meaning of it to you? Well, you know, it seemed like the, the, the meaning was obvious uh, in, in broad strokes uh, that you come from a place of self-centeredness and narcissism, which is how most of us start life. It's all about me. <laughs> And, you know, hopefully along the way you make the same mistakes enough times and you start thinking, well, it's not all about me. It's all about, it's about other people. Uh, and it's a simple notion that uh, service to others is, is an important concept, that killing yourself, destroying this dominant idea of self, it's... Um, it's a big, powerful idea in Buddhism, the idea that yourself is just an illusion. Uh, but psychiatrists uh, embraced the movie too. The psychiatrists uh, saw it as a metaphor for analysis in that you, in analysis, you revisit the same material over and over. You tell the same stories over and over. You keep processing the same experiences until, and each time with different insight, hopefully growing insight, and until uh, finally you're, you're free of uh, whatever kind of distortions, self-distortions have been troubling you. So, you know, it seemed like a good metaphor for a lot of things. Christians embraced it purely on the idea of service. Um, I think the Jewish community, same thing. I got a lot of response from the Jewish community. Uh, And and certainly the yoga and the Buddhist communities. Uh, uh, My wife, Erica, lived for a few years in a Buddhist meditation center. And her mother lived for 35 years in a Buddhist meditation center. And uh, her mom was living in a Korean Zen center at the time. And uh, when the movie came out, uh, she very excitedly said, they saw it, they liked it. You know, the, the, <laughs> it was a hit with the Buddhists. You know. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, big film goers, the Buddhists. You know, so. <laughs> I, I might be, I have a, this is so self-serving, but I profiled this in this, the current issue of Shambhala's Sun, which is a magazine of yoga and Buddhism. Uh, very glossy, nice magazine, real nice profile. But I thought, no, when I told the studio, hey, we got Shambhala's Sun, they were like, you know. <laughs> Did you get the cover at least? No, I'm not yeah. on the cover. I also, okay. got, 
I'm in Hebe magazine as well. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so psychoanalysis is at the basis of uh, another one of your recent hits, um, Analyze, yeah. Analyze This, and of course the sequel. Um, and De Niro has really become a comic, you know, shown himself to be a great comic actor. Um, so I guess let's, um, well, let's see a scene here. I mean, I talked about the chemistry between actors. It's so important that you really allow to develop. And I think the way that Billy Crystal and De Niro work together in this scene, it's a beautifully written scene, but it, it also has a great chemistry in the performances. So let's see this scene from Analyze This. Why don't you just tell me about your friend? His friend, you know, he's a, he's a very powerful guy. Never had trouble dealing with nothing. Now all of a sudden he's like falling apart. He, he cries for no reason. He can't sleep. He can't be with his friends. All of a sudden he, he gets nervous around them. He, he, like he, he wants to get away from them. And these are guys he knows his whole life, you know? It's like, uh, and then he has like these like attacks, you know? Like, 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 like he can't breathe. It's like, uh, gets dizzy, chest pains, you know? It's like, uh, he thinks he's gonna die or something. Panic attacks. What's it with you guys in all this fucking panic attack? Who said panic? Who said panic? Not panic. Dizzy, chest breathing, constricting yeah. uh, attacks. Yeah. This guy just wants to know what he can do to make it stop. Mr. Vitti. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think your friend is you. Yo. Yo. <laughs> you got a gift, my friend. You got a gift. Oh, yeah. You saw that there was something that I was trying to do, and you, you figured that out. That's why you are who you are. God bless you. You got a fucking gift. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I really oh, don't. Yes, you do. Go on. What? Go on. Oh, I think medication could help. Drugs? Mm -hmm. Can't do drugs. I don't do drugs. Well, if you really want to get to the root of the problem, you're going to want to get some form of therapy. Well, what, what like with, with you or something? Or? Me? No, I don't think you want. I, I my my uh, roster of patients is is full. I'm just full right now. So plus, I'm leaving on a short vacation. Where are you going? I don't share that with my patients. Where are you going? Sheridan Bell Harbor Hotel in Miami Beach. That wasn't so hard, was it? No, it wasn't. You know, it's a funny kind of a thing, but you know, I feel better after I got all that off my chest. I feel like like a load. A load is off my shoulders. You're good. I... Doc, thank you. Mr. Vitti, I didn't do anything. Oh, you did something? No, I did nothing. You did something? I didn't The load, do... gone. Where is it? Don't know. You're good. Nah, nah. You're good, Doc. You're good. I'm gonna begin to touch with you. Don't, please. Oh, just one more thing. If I talk to you and you turn me into a fag, I'm gonna kill you, you understand? Could we define fag? Because some feelings may come I up. I go fag, you die. Got it? Got it. Simple. Mm -hmm. huh? You're good, Doc. You're good. Hey, Doc. Mm. 
I would guess these are two different types of actors to work with. You might use a different method with De Niro than Billy Crystal. Yeah, well, but, uh, Billy's aspiration was to, to be thought of as a good actor by Bob. Right. And, and Bob wanted Billy to think of him as a funny guy. So, uh, you know, the, it, the, it was, it, that worked well for everybody. Because um, Billy was able to tone down his, uh, his broadest comic instincts for this film, which is hard for someone who's used to getting the big laugh. He, he was able to play straight for, for Bob. And uh, it, was, it was really great for both of them. And, and, and Billy brought a credibility to the character that Bob was able to work with uh, as a serious actor. And what do you do in, in terms of tweaking a scene, in terms of the, the, the writing? I mean, what sort of things do you do? Because this is a, you directed it, um, you didn't originate the script, right? No, there, there were f- like four writers before it got to me. The, the, the way the script was going before I got it was, it felt like a broad parody of, uh, of the Godfather films. And when I read that, I thought, it's, it's cheesy. It's just, it, f- it feels way too broad. And it didn't feel like anyone, any of the other writers had read anything either about the history of organized crime or any real psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I set, and, and stylistically, I thought I'd much rather do a funny Scorsese film than, uh, than parody The Godfather. So um, that was my, the mindset I went in with, and I worked with Peter Tolan uh, mm-hmm. on the script, and Peter's brilliant, uh, and a lot of funny lines coming from him. But I approached, my first meeting was with De Niro before I met with anyone else. And um, I, 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 I just, I didn't pitch any comedy to him. I, I, I did an analysis of his character. I talked to him about uh, anxiety, guilt, grief, and rage as components of his character. And from a purely psychological point of view, as, as if I was... The, the, the psychiatrist Billy Crystal's the film. character, yeah. And then I also d- did some pretty good research on, on the history of the, of the five families in New York and uh, realized there was a watershed moment in the history of organized crime that was really the setting, the background for the film, and that that would be contributing to his anxiety and mm-hmm. would set up the beginning of the film, the Appalachian meeting and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, Bob was impressed with that. And Billy, I made the complete opposite pitch. I, when I met with Billy for the first time, I said, I just want you to know that comedy is the god that I serve, and uh, uh, this film will be funny no matter what. Mm. I think it was Manola Dargis who wrote about your films, that they're, they're sort of all, you know, all about what it means to be a man, or how, learning how yeah. to become a man. Um, and, and your films do that. You actually have a real sympathy for your characters, and you really sort of show characters going on these journeys, even if it's, um, you know, De Niro in this film or Chevy Chase in Vacation, you know, you have these characters who are buffoons or, you know, flawed, to say the least, um, but you're sympathetic towards them and you're sort of showing them going through a process of maturing. Yeah. Manola <laughs> also, about my last film, said she felt soiled by it. <laughs> you know, so I, eh, a lot of people want to soil Manola does. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But I, she, she was very kind in my early films, yeah. <laughs> uh, other ones. But uh, she here tonight? <laughs> no, 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 no. But, uh, but year one, uh, moving right along. So year yeah. one, the, the new film. Uh, it's a new film, but I understand it's a sort of an idea or a type of movie you've been kicking around for a while. A lot of influences. Uh, yeah. Just this love of uh, putting characters. I, I love history, and I, I read some history. Uh, uh, but started with probably with Mel Brooks' 2,000-year-old man, the idea of taking a 
character with a completely contemporary sensibility and having him talk about the ancient world. Very interesting to me. And then that was in college. And then 10 years after that, when I was working in New York with uh, Bill and uh, John Belushi, uh, I was watching a PBS documentary about uh, early man. And I I didn't know that Neanderthal and uh, Cro-Magnon had coexisted on the planet (laughs) for like 10,000 years. So I imagined the meeting, the first meeting between Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal. I had Bill Murray play modern man and John Belushi play Neanderthal. Very funny scene. Uh, Bill played him like a hipster, you know, and uh, John played him like Neanderthal like a thug. Uh, And that was another seed. And then um, I started thinking seriously about religion as I got older. And after uh, 2009-11, I... uh, I, I, I thought there was some serious. I had some serious concerns about uh, the role of orthodoxy and fundamentalism in in, in global politics, and uh, and then the controversy over the uh, uh, the Mel Gibson film. Uh, I thought religion, which should be uniting people, is really dividing people, and uh, so I started reading the Old Testament, looking for the the seeds of, uh, of these, these powerful divisions, you know. Uh, and so the questions I was asking myself, when did the, when did the church and state fuse? What, what was the role of, of religion in, in, for early man? How did that happen? And so I started seeing, uh, and this is like an awful pitch for a movie, but I actually said this to the studio. Uh, I said, I want to track the psychosocial development of man, mankind and the evolution of civilization through Genesis, you know. <laughs> uh, did, did you mention Jack Black? In that, no. In that pitch? But I had jokes to go with it, yeah. you know. Uh, so I started reading Genesis from um, like a really mundane point of view. What is the Garden of Eden? I thought, who, who are Adam and Eve, if not hunter-gatherers? That's, you know, they're living in a state of nature with no existential awareness of the world around them. Uh, mm-hmm. And then that's pretty much what happens. They... They take personal responsibility. They break the rule. They eat the fruit. Suddenly, it's the knowledge of good and evil. Suddenly, life, the, everything becomes relative, and all the uh, terrible existential realities uh, occur to them. They're going to die. They're going to have to work for a living. They're going to bring forth children in pain. That's <laughs> what it says in Genesis. And then the very second story, the second story in the Bible is a murder. You know, right. it's like watching uh, television at night. You know, so. <laughs> Uh, even the people who wrote the Bible knew you, you can hook an audience with a killing, you know. So, right. so I thought the Cain and Abel story, you know, it was going to be fun to tell that story and, and depict it. And, and the Abraham story, anyone who's uh, ever like focused on the Abraham story is going to sacrifice his son because God told him to. Well, how does Isaac feel about that, you know? Someone wrote a very funny uh, short story. It's a little vignette. Uh, it's Abraham talking to Isaac on the way home from almost sacrificing him, and Abraham is saying, well, you know, uh, you know, I wasn't serious, right? You know, like, uh, you know, it's something men do. This is the way men joke around, you know. Really no need to tell your mother about this. Is <laughs> so I thought, all right, well, that's going to be funny, and then uh, circumcision, uh, laugh a minute, uh, circumcision. <laughs> So, you know, I just thought there's, there's rich material there. And the story I wanted to tell was this journey. Uh, a rabbi once said to me that, uh, that Genesis definitely tells the history of civilization, but it also encapsulates the developmental history of the individual. We start from a place of innocence. We awaken to adult consciousness. Uh, and 
Sodom and Gomorrah, the beginning of adult temptation. Um, and, you know, we have the, the patriarchs uh, tracking through it, uh, giving us a, a vision of adult wisdom and, and responsibility. So I thought, well, that's going to be the journey of these characters. They're going to start out as innocents. They're going to encounter, you know, evil on a, a, a personal evil, a sociopathy and right. uh, psychosis in Cain that they haven't seen before. They're going to encounter organized Abraham, the desert <laughs> visionary, and then, and then Sodom, which I kind of play as the Las Vegas of the ancient world. <laughs> Okay, well, speaking of circumcision, we do yeah. have a clip oh, um, yeah, yeah. that deals with that. So um, I didn't mean that pun, but, but we'll, let's see the... Let's, um, see Hank, the Hank Azaria as uh, yeah. Abraham. So when do you think this smiting is going to go down? Because we may have some friends there. Their fate is sealed, my friend. But for my faith and devotion... That self-same God has promised unto me the whole of this land. From the heights of Golan in the north to the Sinai in the south. From the river of Jordan to the great sea. This is all your land? For all of eternity. Yeah, but apparently God forgot to tell anyone else. We're at war with someone like every other day. Excuse me, I and my kinsmen have vanquished our enemies by the mighty hand of God. Blessed be he. Praise is his name and glory his graciousness. Therefore, to signify my covenant with the one true God, I shall on this day circumcise the flesh of my penis, and of you, and you, and of you, and of every male who dwelleth hereby. Excuse me? I don't know what you mean. We shall grasp the foreskins of our penises, and we shall cut therefrom the extra flesh. Amen. Oh, <laughs> I don't think I have any extra. Couldn't we pierce our ears or something? No, 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 no. So it shall be written, and so it shall be done. Let me get this straight. You're saying you have too much, and you want to... You know, Abe, <laughs> it's been a long day. We've all had a lot to drink. And I know that this foreskin thing sounds like a good idea now, but you might want to sleep on it. We can always cut it off in the morning. But if we do it now... There's just no way to get it back on there. No, no, no. Trust me. It's going to be a very, very sleek look. This is, this is going to catch on. I'm going to go get my good knife. Just wait right there. I'll be right back to cut your penises. Not, not the whole thing, you understand. Just, just the very tip. Then after, we're all going to have wine and sponge cake. <laughs> that was an improv line from Hank Azaria. Then after, we're all going to have wine and sponge cake, which is like uh, about as Jewish a line as you'll hear. I think. <laughs> it was, uh, he has an earlier line, Hank, when they're coming into the Hebrew camp. He says, uh, we are the Hebrews, uh, a righteous people, but not very good at sports. <laughs> Was it kind of a, a meeting of different generations? You know, when, back when you made Caddyshack, you brought in the old school yeah. comedian Rodney Dangerfield, yeah. and this is sort of reverse in a way. Yeah, yeah, Rodney was, uh, that's a whole chapter of my life. Right. That's, uh, but here you've got, you know, the, yeah. the, 
different generations. Well, I'd, I'd started uh, noticing that uh, as Judd Apatow rose to uh, prominence in the comedy world, uh, I started noticing how often he referred to uh, the stuff I'd worked on uh, as being the real powerful influences on his work. And, uh, and he mentioned me specifically numerous times. And I thought, wow, uh, you know, that's very, I like that. Because he was getting successful and, you know, my age, I wondered how much, uh, how much do I have left. Uh, and then we met up at, uh, we were both at the same film festival in Europe, and we kind of got to be friends. And, uh, and I thought, how great would it be if Judd produced this movie with me? Uh, as far as, because uh, I'd already acted in, um, Orange County kind of brought me to a younger audience. Uh, Jake Kasdan directed that film, and, it was, it, and that's where I worked with Jack for the first time uh, as actors. And then... Um, I thought it was a great feeling to connect with younger people. People of my generation had either faded, they, they just weren't doing good work anymore. Some of the important ones had died. And um, I thought, well, how am I going to ever kind of catch the, the, the wave again? And um, hooking up with Judd was great. Um, of course, uh, and he brought people into the film that I, I didn't, wouldn't have had access to. I might have, but he, he just knew instinctively where to go. I had Jack Black committed. He brought Michael Sarah. Hmm. Um, uh, I, I wanted David Cross. He brought Paul Rudd to play Abel. So it was this nice kind of uh, balance. And uh, of course, with Michael Sarah being so young, Michael's is not much older than my own son, who's 19, Julian, sitting there. And, uh, and Chris Mintz Plas, uh, Isaac. Uh, <laughs> who I'd, see, I'd seen them both in Superbad, they were tremendous. Uh, Chris is the same age, and we have a young actress, Juno Temple, in the film who was 18 when we were shooting. So uh, I'm 60, I'll be 65 in November. Judd's about 40, Jack's about 40, and these other guys are just under 20 or right at 20. So it really did three generations were working together here. Well, uh, the the last clip I want to show is also ha- captures this idea of the passing of generations because it's a scene from Knocked Up with oh. you and Seth Rogen. Yeah. Um, so. Where you seem, I'll ask you afterwards if this is, but it seems to okay. be sort of summing up your approach to living. So uh, okay. let's see this. Um, let's see this moment from Knocked Up. I'm going to be a grandfather. You happy about that? Absolutely, delighted. This is a disaster. No, this is not a disaster. It is. An earthquake is a disaster. Your grandmother having Alzheimer's so bad she doesn't even know who the fuck I am. That's a disaster. This is a good thing. This is a blessing. I had a vision for how my life would go, and this definitely is Wait, not. Wait, is this your it. vision? Are you living your vision right I now? I am kind of living my vision. Well, that is sad, I'm telling you. Life doesn't care about your vision, okay? Stuff happens, you just got to deal with it. You roll with it. That's, that's the beauty of it all. I just look at how I tell the kid not to do drugs when I do drugs. I'll feel like a hypocrite. Well, remember what I told you? When you were a teenager? What did you say? <laughs> I said, no pills, no powders. That's right, that's right. right. If it grows in the ground, it's probably okay. I mean, I guess it worked like you told me not to smoke pot all those years, and then I found out you were smoking pot that whole time. Not the whole time, just in the evenings and all day every weekend. <laughs> not that much. Honestly, though, when you look at me, do you not think at all, like, Oh, if he just never existed, I would have avoided a massive heap of trouble, you know? Absolutely not. I, I love you totally and completely. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm the best thing that ever happened to you? Yeah. Now I just feel bad for you. 
So is that close to the real Harold Ramis at the end? Uh, well, it, it's certainly close to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just show all the drug talk. Uh, uh, you know, the, he was playing a stoner and uh, I was playing the, the stoner dad, you know, uh, seemed generationally correct. Um, but the, um, I was thinking of my daughter, Violet, uh, when I was playing that scene with him. Uh, and I was projecting that onto him. Um, and and just thinking that's that's how what I would say to her, hmm. uh, and and he thought it was frighteningly like his own father, uh, <laughs> uh, but of course Judd uh, insists on improvisation. Once you've done the script once or twice, that he just starts shouting at you, make something up, you know, just do something else, say anything, you know. So yeah. you just keep talking. And Seth is uh, he's kind of appetite trained, so he uh, he just rolls with it, and and uh, you know we just. A lot of that's improv. <laughs> well, you've done an incredible, incredible job, uh, sort of building your career, and um, you know, doing this mix of being writer, director, and actor. And uh, you seem to have rolled with the punches pretty well in a tough industry. So, yeah, well, I, I'm uh, I'm in it, but not of it. I, I don't yeah. know if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, I. I well, you live in Chicago. I mean, yeah, a know. long time ago, I. I I realized it, it's almost inescapable, but I thought it would be really painful to vest my self-esteem in whether or not people like my work or not. You know, mm. uh, so I just I just developed this philosophy of being, trying to be in the moment, doing the best I can, and 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 let the chips fall where they may. You know. So okay. Well, I really want to thank you for sharing this night with us. My and, pleasure. And good luck with year one. Thank you, David. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.